If you were with us last week, as we ended chapter 2, we were looking at the roles of men and women in the church, in the corporate meeting of believers. And now the apostle is going to outline the roles of the overseer, the bishop, the, the elder. The apostle, remember, is inspired by the Spirit of God to give the qualifications of leaders. And we begin with the overseer. But not only do we see the qualifications of an elder and overseer, but we see the character as well. So, Father, this morning as we continue in this pastoral epistle, I pray that you administer to our hearts because it's just not for an overseer, it's for all of us, that first of all, we may know what godly leadership should be. And then second of all, these are characteristics described here that should be a part of our lives um, if, as we desire to, to oversee our children, um, to lead our homes, uh, to uh, minister to others effectively. So there's something for all of us to take away here. So I pray that we would be ones, that we are attentive to the things that are said here. And Lord, just praying through these things, how uh, these things may be worked out in our own lives. So we just ask that you would touch our hearts and teach us in Jesus' name. Amen. We know that good and godly leadership is important to us. We want good leaders, don't we, in our government? We want uh, that to take place. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 2 tells us, When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. But when the wicked man rules, the people groan. We want good leaders in our community, in our schools, uh, in the courts. Um, we, as men, were called to be godly leaders in our home. And, and those of us who are parents were to be godly leaders. Um, how important it is to have godly leadership in the church. And the Bible is full of examples of leaders of God's people who were godly leaders and then those who were terrible leaders. When you go to the Old Testament, for example, the house of Israel, the 10 northern tribes, there were 19 kings that ruled uh, over the 10 northern tribes, the house of Israel. All of them were ungodly kings. They, they uh, were not walking right with the Lord. Uh, they were full of idolatry and it led the, the 10 northern tribes to be taken off into captivity as it went from bad to worse. When you look at, for example, the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, that there were terrible leaders as well. And we see the consequences of that. And eventually they would go off into captivity by the Babylonians. But we also see with Judah, we see examples of some godly leaders that came along and how blessed the nation and, and benefited the nation and the people. When you go to the New Testament, we see particularly the qualities of godly leaders in the church, the apostles who had apostolic authority such as Paul and John and Peter, and godly elders and overseers such as Timothy and Titus, who Paul writes concerning the qualification of an overseer. We see bad leaders mentioned in the New Testament, such as Diotrephus mentioned in 3 John. So as we go through this, first of all, keep in mind Yet Paul had established, as we saw in chapter 2, that the men are to take the leadership role and position in the church, um, and, and that's going to be confirmed as we continue. Remember that as Paul's writing this letter, there's no chapter breaks. He continues writing after he talks about the role of men and women in the church, and both of them have important roles, but the men are to take the leadership role, and then he continues in that, that as we see he discussed 
possesses the overseer, the leader, the shepherd of that uh, church. Um, second of all, uh, as we look at this, not every man is called to be an overseer in the church. But please, uh, I, I hope that guys, particularly you, but for all of us, that we don't come here this morning thinking, oh, I should have stayed home. I could have caught you know, an early football game or something. This doesn't concern me. I'm not going to be an overseer. I'm not desiring to be a pastor or an elder in the church. Listen, we should, first of all, all of us know what godly and good leadership should be in the church. And second of all, these are, as I've already mentioned, good qualities that should be worked out in our lives as we read this. And I think that you're going to see that quite clearly as we go over this and begin to look at it. So men are to take the leadership position in the church, but uh, here the apostle is going to make it clear that it won't just be any man that is called to the position of an overseer, a bishop, an elder. No man is qualified to be a spiritual leader in the church just because of his gender. And I want to take just a minute at this point in our study as we talk about church conduct, which we began to look at in chapter 2 and continues through the end of the letter. Paul giving instructions about proper church conduct, how the church should be run, the order in the church. And we know that the church is not just a building, that the church is people, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, called out from the world, so we're going to be different than the world. And one of the things to remember that these instructions about conduct are not just um, rules and regulations, as they are more about roles and relationships and about spiritual maturity. We know that as we look at the scripture that God doesn't use the same criteria as man does when looking for a leader. For example, I think we see a good example that's given to us in the Old Testament when Saul was rejected as king, the first king of Israel. And the Lord told Samuel the prophet, go to the home of Jesse there in Bethlehem and you're going to anoint the new king, one who has a heart after me. So he goes to Bethlehem, he goes to the home of Jesse who has several sons, he knocks on the door and says, I'm here to anoint the new king. And Jesse brings all his sons in except for one who was out in the field. And of course that was David. And the eldest Eliab, and, and immediately when Samuel saw him, he was handsome, he was tall, he, 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 he seemed like, yeah, this is the one, uh, this is the Lord's anointed that is before me. And the Lord rebuked Samuel for that, he corrected him, he said, listen, I haven't chosen him. And Samuel, don't just look at the, the, his appearance or his physical stature, for the Lord does not see as a man sees, for a man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. And in 1 Samuel 16, the Lord would choose David. He went through all the sons, and he said, Jesse, you got any more sons? Well, yeah, the young is. He's out with the sheep. He's a shepherd. He's just young. But he would be brought in, and the Lord said, that's the one. This is David has a heart after me. And, and we know that he would become the greatest leader, the greatest king that Israel ever had. Yes, David was a great warrior, but God blessed him in his calling because he had a heart for the Lord. And the Lord today, first of all, when looking to use a man in the leadership of a church, the first criteria is always a man that has a heart for him. You see, we're not just to look at the uh, external criteria and as of primary importance. 
there are so many ministries and churches, perhaps when they're looking for a pastor, an overseer, a, a leader, an elder, um, they look just at the external characteristics and qualifications. Uh, how much education do they have? Nothing wrong with education. Is he charismatic? Is he dynamic? Is he funny? Can he draw in a lot of people? And the focus can be on those kinds of things rather than where is his heart towards the Lord? Does he have spiritual maturity where he has a love for God and he has a love for the word of God and he has a love for others? Is he going to be the same man outside the four walls of the church as he is inside the church? And so what we sometimes think as good qualities of an overseer in the church may not necessarily be what God is looking for. So Paul is going to list the godly qualifications and characteristics of those who are called to be leaders in the church, those who are called to be overseers, those who are called to be elders, those who are called to be pastors. So looking at our text this morning, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 3 that this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. So here Paul is going to describe the office of a bishop, or it might be in your Bible an overseer, it's translated that, an elder, a pastor, and those three words are interchangeable. Now, pastor refers to this, the same man, uh, all three terms do, elder and bishop, but they describe different aspects of his leadership. Bishop refers to what he does, he oversees. Elder speaks of the man himself. It speaks of his spiritual maturity. And pastor, which also means shepherd, illustrates his method. He shepherds the people of God. So here Paul giving uh, these qualifications of a bishop, an overseer, a pastor. Timothy, this is what you're to look for when looking at leadership in the church. Looking for one who will help and minister and overseeing the ministry. One that will help shepherd the flock of God's people. One that is of uh, maturity spiritually. Now perhaps some of you, you grew up in a church where the elders were selected you know, by the church, by a vote, even the pastors. They, they would have a, a vote and the results would be based on perhaps a man's popularity or if he networked the church enough or if he was one that really gave to the church and we're going to make him an elder. And, and to us, sometimes that method of selecting elders seemed to be good into some ministries, but there can be some really pro some problems that can come up with that. What I see in the New Testament is elders, overseers, pastors are not elected, but they are appointed, first of all, by God. It is a calling of God. And we also see the model given to us in the church that elders are appointed by the man who planted the church. We see that in Acts chapter 14, verse 23. Or by the man who pastors the church. We see that as Paul writes to Titus in the third pastoral epistle in chapter 1. He says, Titus, you are to appoint elders. Uh, the overseer uh, in the church, 
uh, is there for specific reasons. They are to guard the flock, the, the people, Acts chapter 20, and they are to help the weak, as, as told to us in that same chapter. They are to shepherd the flock, that is 1 Peter chapter 5, and they are to be an example to the people as well, Peter writes in 1 Peter 5. They are to pray for the people and the sick, that's James chapter 5. They are to be dedicated to God and to the Word of God, Acts chapter 6. They are to discuss and come to conclusions regarding church doctrine, that's Acts chapter 15. And they are to preach and they are to teach, 1 Timothy chapter 5. They choose people for the work of missions and ministry, again, Acts chapter 15. They are to be good stewards of the church finances, Titus chapter 1. And because of these responsibilities that he has, the position of an overseer must be held by godly men that meet certain qualifications. And as we look at these qualifications in this chapter, we're going to see that they're really a good description of, of a godly man, of any of us who desire to, to be godly in our lives. And not just in verses 2 through 7, but also we have seen that, that the priority of us men, that we are to be men of prayer, lifting up holy hands is what we are as we to do, our priority as we saw in chapter 2. So it's interesting that Paul writes here that if a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work, as we read. It is a good work. It's not just a good position, not just a good salary or a good way to become, you know, popular. Uh, a ministry is not a profession uh, one enters into and says, this is my job. It is a calling, a ministry. And the first qualification that Paul lists here of an overseer is one that is willing to work in his ministry, to be available for people. And you've heard me say this before, but a, a good shepherd is going to be with the sheep, and not gone all the time, only show up when it's time to do a teaching, only when they have to. And so here, the pastoral staff at, at Calvary Chapel, we have somebody here every day of the week. We take one day off each, and, and we rotate and taking certain different days off. So somebody's here to cover things, to be available to minister, to be able to take calls, to be able to counsel, to be here. And the guys know on pastoral staff that, that they are to do their work and do it with diligence. We work hard here. And that expectation is, is known because it's a good work, but it is work and not to be lazy in, in the position that God has called us to be. Listen, you work hard. You do. And what blesses me so much about this community and being, you know, here in Greeley is, is you guys work hard. You, you work the land. You have businesses. You're out in the field working. You do construction. You're, you're teachers. You're nurses. You're mechanics. You're at home raising children. Uh, you guys work hard, and it should be no less uh, of something that we are to be about as we do our ministry, that we are to do our, our ministry and to do our work with diligence. And so a leader needs to know the value of work. And as we continue here, Paul lists these specific qualifications in verse 2, you know, through um, as we go through verse 7. And as we begin to read that for an elder, a bishop, 
then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, able to teach. So he must be blameless. So we can read that when you think, well, we can all sit down on that one, right? And we want to know what this word blameless means. It doesn't mean flawless or sinless because we would all be disqualified from being an overseer. There's no pastor, there's no overseer that is flawless or sinless. But the word blameless here does take on an important aspect in this ministry. The word blameless uh, does not mean that, um, that they are perfect because there is no perfect pastor. But the word blameless literally means nothing to take hold upon. In other words, there's nothing in that man's life that people can look at and say, they're not walking with God in that area of their life. Man, they're full of pride. They're full of arrogance. They're really careless with the church finances. Uh, they, they seem to get wrapped up in strange doctrine, you know, and introducing it in the church. Uh, they have a foul mouth. They seems to be, they like to go down to the distilleries and breweries, you know, and, and put it all over, you know, social media and stuff. To be blameless is to be above reproach. So nothing sticks and, and there will be those who will come along to any man who's in leadership, any pastor, and try to blame and, and criticize. But I don't want anything going on in my life where you can look at, because again, none of us are perfect. But it's not an excuse that we can just live any way that we want. And I don't want you coming along and saying, man, you have this obvious. You got a, you know, this problem going on. It shows in the church. So nothing sticks. I, I like what Alan Redpath said uh, concerning pastors. That number one, he should have a mind of a scholar. Second of all, a heart of a child. And thirdly, the height of a rhinoceros. You've got to be thick-skinned in ministry because there will be those that are just looking, you know, to, to come at you and, and to criticize and nitpick you and all of this. But I don't want to fall short in an area of my life where you can look at Scripture and say, you're not walking with God in this area when perhaps it comes to your family and, and when it comes to your conduct and your behavior and your speech, we're going to see that Paul's going to say, Timothy, you're to be an example of these things. Because, you see, being a pastor doesn't just take place for me when I'm behind the pulpit. It is to be a way of life. And I don't want to be living in a way that is contrary to God's way. And so in my conduct, in my behavior, in my speech... You know, in my purity, in my, my faith, I want to be blameless above reproach in that. So a bishop must be blameless, second of all, the husband of one wife. Now, there, there can be great debate in the church on how strict Paul is being here. Now, obviously, Paul, uh, you know, given these guidelines and qualification for the husband of one wife, would exclude anyone of polygamy. And, and that was taking place in, in the Greek culture. And the Greek culture that Paul's writing to, you know, there in the city of Ephesus, it had great influence. And so the view of many in the Greek culture was every man should have three women in his life. A mistress for conversation, a concubine for pleasure, and a wife to bear his children. And Paul's saying, no, absolutely not. Those in the church are to be a one-woman man. And you're not to have multiple wives or women in your life. 
And a spiritual leader is a man that is completely devoted to the woman that he is married to right now. He sees marriage as sacred. Now, where the debate can come into the church is if someone has ever been divorced, can they ever be an overseer? If one is overtaken in a trespass, do we restore them in a spirit of gentleness, uh, as Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 tells us that we are to do? I mean, there's different circumstances. What if they were divorced before they became a Christian and they were young? And, and, and it happened years ago. And now they're a believer and they're growing in the Lord and growing in the Word. Does that exclude them? There's a debate on all that. What if, and I, I've, I've heard of this that has happened, that a pastor, all of a sudden his you know, spouse left them for no biblical reason. I don't want to be a pastor's wife anymore. And the husband was abandoned. And on and on the debate goes. There are those who even say that Paul is mandating that an elder be married. And I don't believe he's saying that because Paul was definitely a spiritual leader in the church. And he was not married at this time. Some say that if an overseer becomes a widower, that he is to remain single. And, of course, the Catholic Church has gone to the other side of the spectrum saying no marriage at all for their priests. So there's different circumstances, you know, that take place where the debate comes in. And I think that as we look at it, for me, is what do I see in that individual? You know, are they now a Christian? Did they get divorced before when they're young? Uh, there's the Lord forgiveness and restoration that is clearly given to us in the scripture. But what I look at is that man, is he loving his wife presently? Is there a history of that? Is he loving his wife as Christ loves the church? Do I see that his house is in order? Or are there problems that are in the marriage or in the home? So this is a mandate of complete faithfulness to his wife. And if there's an elder presently that they divorce their wife for no biblical grounds, you know, it's an indication of a hardened heart. And so Paul here says the husband of one wife. So a bishop is to be blameless, a husband of one wife, thirdly, temperate. In the King James, it reads vigilant. A man who is temperate is someone who's not given to extremes. They are reliable and trustworthy. Uh, they uh, don't take extreme actions in certain situations. They don't melt under pressure. And we're not talking about a pastor that's having a bad day or going through a rough time. Listen, pray for your pastors because we are not exempt from the pressures that we face to really begin to get us down or to get discouraged or to get depressed or to just feel like throwing in the towel. We are men of like passion and we go through all those. And what has really saddened me is hearing, even of this week, of, of uh, pastors that have committed suicide because they were dealing with depression. We're not exempt from any of those things. So pray for pastors. Pray for the leadership here. Because we can feel those kinds of things like anybody else can. So we're not talking about those who are going through difficult times and, and going through a hard time and going through loss, but, but being temperate. You know, if I come in here 
And, and we have staff meeting on Tuesday, and all the staff is worried about how I'm going to react. Am I, am I going to fly off the handle when things don't go our way you know, or my way? This last week, we had a challenging week. There was a lot that was going on this week, and, and there was some things that didn't quite go the way that we wanted. Uh, how am I going to react to that? Some of you have bosses that they fly off the handle if things don't go exactly the way they want. So it, the overseer is one that just doesn't you know, react fleshly to difficulty or fold all the time when there's challenges. Being temperate means that you keep your head on straight and you exercise sober, sensible judgment in all things. Again, this is good qualities for any one of us who desire to minister to others, minister to our children, minister in our homes. Maybe as you're ministering to others, as you oversee others at work, in your job, or in your business. So a bishop is to be blameless, the husband of one wife, uh, temperate, and then fourthly, sober-minded. And a man that is sober-minded is one that is able to think clearly with clarity. A leader overseer is one that isn't a constant jokester, but he also isn't just always somber and solemn. He's one that isn't given over to foolish behavior. He has a proper attitude, and he's earnest in his work. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18 says, Don't be drunk with wine, which is the dispensation, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, Paul's going to say, as we continue reading, that an elder is not to be given over to wine. But if anyone desires to be sober-minded, and I think this is important, they need to be careful what it is that they are taking into their minds, what it is that they're looking at, what it is that they're listening to. And obviously, if you're taking in wine, it's going to affect your ability to think soberly. Of course it is. But I want to point out something. I think there's a secondary application, and that is if you are taking in things, if I am taking in things that will pollute my mind, things of the world, pleasures of the world, sin, perversity, then I can't be sober-minded, and you won't be. And keep in mind that Romans chapter 12, verse 2, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. In other words, let the, you know, don't let the world conform you or shape you and if you are constantly, if I am taking in worldly stuff and attitudes, we will not be able to renew our minds spiritually. Spiritual transformation won't take place. That word transform means going from one place to another. It's like transportation has the root word transform, going from one place to another. And if transformation and renewing of your mind is not taking place, you will not be sober-minded. And we need to come to grips with this, especially for you who desire to perhaps be in leadership or to be able to minister effectively to others. Listen, it does matter what it is that you take into your mind. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 8, whatever things are true and whatever things are noble and whatever things are pure and lovely and of good report, praiseworthy, meditate on these things. And I'll tell you that, that guys that are in leadership or anyone who desires to be in leadership, I constantly warn them, it, you know, it does matter what it is that you're watching, what it is that you're setting your mind on. You know, the movies, the YouTubes, you know, the social media and all of this. 
And if I hear somebody who desires to to want to be in leadership, they say, well, I'll just do whatever I want. I'll watch whatever movie I want. I have liberty in Christ. And you're just being legalistic. I know that there's difficulty ahead for them. It's not legalistic. It's being wise. And when I hear that they're watching certain things or listening to certain things, I know that they won't be sober-minded. And they will have more of a difficult time discerning between what is good and what is evil, what is holy and what is unholy. And I'll be real honest with you. I get real uneasy when I hear a pastor that he gives examples, you know, movie clips for an illustration in the service from an R-rated movie. Or he's plastering all over social media that he's down at the distillery, you know, with his buds. A pastor is to be sober-minded, blameless, teaching. And I need to be before God, not before the movie screen. And this is real important. What I look for in a leader is one that is sober-minded, not given to foolish examples. I look for a man that is in the sanctuary that is taking in the Word of God constantly and doing it consistently and is in devotion to the Lord. And seeking God's word for direction. And not the foolishness of the world. So blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, a good behavior. The idea here is orderly, modest. I believe it's the same word that he uses in chapter 2 when it comes to modest dress of women. And then he is to be hospitable. That is, they're willing to open up their lives and their homes to others. You don't see people as a burden. Uh, to be hospitable means that you are friendly and that you show care to others, concern for them, talking with them, praying for them. That's being hospitable. And then a bishop must be able to teach. That, of course, speaks of his ability to be able to handle the scriptures, to rightly divide the word of truth, as Paul's going to tell Timothy. He must be able to understand, be able to communicate truth, must be able to refute those who teach deception or what is false. We're going to see in the next chapter, Paul gives a warning to Timothy about that. He must be able to teach, whether it is in public or in a home fellowship or discipling one-on-one. -on -one. Being able to teach is different than being able to tell stories or a lot of good jokes or being funny. Nothing wrong with using humor. But they are ones that are mature in the Word of God. Not everyone with the gift of teaching is an elder, but every elder must have the gift of teaching. And then a bishop, verse 3, not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, not, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Not given to wine, overseers in the church are not to be given to alcohol. Now there's a debate on all this. I've heard guys say, oh, I can drink wine. I can drink wine. Here I see that an overseer is not to be given to wine, period. Not violent. And you may be thinking that's a given. But I've heard all kinds of stories through my years, 27 years of being a pastor. Uh, that I even heard of, uh, of a pastor that he was arrested for spousal abuse. And, and then he thought he should remain in the ministry. I know that's an extreme example, but a pastor isn't one that is always looking for a fight or pounding his fist on the table when he's mad. He isn't one that isn't saying to people, I just feel like punching that guy in the face. He makes me so mad. 
A man who is a leader in the church will let God fight his cause. A bishop is not to be greedy for money. And that's a word for us today. I don't need to tell you how you can turn on Christian TV and it's all about giving money. Plant your seed faith and God will return a hundredfold. And there are those, you know, TV evangelists and have ministries living in multi-multi-million dollar homes and luxury cars and expensive clothes and jewelries and then they boast about it making huge salaries and bonuses. And it's very easy in our wealthy nation to take advantage of people who really want to desire to give to God's work. A bishop is to be gentle, it says, not quarrelsome. We're to be gentle. Our example is to be Jesus who is gentle. And remember that Jesus said in chapter 11 of Matthew, Come to me, all of you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. People are hurting, and they need us to be truthful and honest, but gentle, compassionate, and understanding. And we who are in leadership, not rough and hard and just tearing people down. He says that a leader must not be quarrelsome. Somebody who's always wanting to pick a fight or criticize and at odds with others, you know, always criticizing others, ends up being about them all the time. Well, I don't like their personality. I don't like them. Or I've had those who even, they want to be in leadership and, you know, they're always looking for a fight. They're always looking to buck what decision was made and I don't like it and and all of this at odds with somebody. And here's the thing, that someone who is quarrelsome, it always becomes about them and their wants and, and their demands. Matter of fact, I believe Paul's going to say that, that um, to us uh, in 2 Timothy, he says, A servant of the Lord must not be quarrel, but be gentle to all, able to teach, patient, and humility, correcting those who are in opposition. So he tells us that we're to be gentle, not quarrelsome. It pushes people away, and you're not able to minister. And a bishop is not to be covetous. A word, again, that is very important. Always wanting more, and that can be a problem in today. Because we can look at another ministry and say, boy, I wish I had their building, or I wish I had the amount of people they had, or I wish I could do what they do, uh, whatever the case may be. And you know, one of the things that the Lord, and we have to guard against that all the time, but one of the things that the Lord has shown me is, you know, every pastor wants the church to grow. And and as I remember, we got to, to about 50 people. I said, oh, Lord, I would just love to have 100 people, just 100 and then 100 people. Oh, Lord, I, I, just, I would just love it if we had 200 people. And the Lord really began to convict me about that. And it was like he was saying, if you can't love and be content with the people I've given you, are you going to love and be content with those that you're wishing would come? I want to minister to as many people as God gives to us. But I also know that if I can't love those five people, those ten people, I'm not going to love those hundred people, five hundred people, or whatever. And so to be thankful for what God has done here at Calvary Chapel is something that I want to be reminded of all the time. 
and great things that he has done, not to be covetousness and we're secondary, we're not a real church because we don't have, you know, the huge facilities and all of this. But Lord, thank you to have the privilege to be able to be an overseer here, to shepherd the people of God. And so, Father, we thank you as we went over some of these qualifications and we'll again look at it. And Lord, these things are convicting to me but, Lord, also I know that they are to be a part of, of our lives and these good qualities and godly qualities and characteristics. And, Lord, we also know that there is no pastor that is perfect, flawless. But, Lord, I do pray. I pray for the guys that are here, the overseers and myself, that, Lord, that first of all, that we would seek you. And we would be humbled before you. And that we would fear you, reverence you, and a calling that you've given to us, that we would never take it for granted. That we would see it as a privilege every single day that we get to come here. So I pray for your wisdom and your strength and your guidance and everything. Maybe we be men that we look to the word of God and that we walk in humility. And Lord, that we stand for righteousness and are gentle and giving and hospitable. Help us be the husbands that you've called us to be, the fathers. To be the godly man outside of the four walls of the church in our conduct and behavior. And Lord, I pray that it's something that all of us would desire. To live for you. To minister to others. To be godly leaders in our home, in our businesses. As we oversee others at work, perhaps. We want to have these qualities, Lord, in our lives that we may be able to touch lives. So, Father, I thank you for today. And I also, I just pray if there's anyone here that you haven't come to Jesus Christ for salvation, that none of these things can be worked out in your life unless, first of all, you're forgiven and you become a new creation in Christ. Until you surrender to the Lordship of Jesus, he is your salvation. And the greatest need <clears throat> is to be saved, to be forgiven of sin. And that's why Jesus came to die for you. He died for your sins. He rose again. He's alive. And he's the only one that did that. And so the invitation is given this morning. While we got a few minutes, the gospel, the good news is this, that there is everlasting life and forgiveness of sin and right relationship with the Father that comes by faith in him. And we want to give you the invitation to come to him. Jesus, the Son of God, who came and died for you and rose again from the grave. And he's alive. And today is the day of salvation. If it means anything to anyone here this morning, will you pray this prayer? You can pray, Jesus, I do come. And I ask that you would forgive me of my sins. I believe you died on the cross for me. You rose from the grave. You're alive. And I ask that you would be my personal Lord and Savior. And I thank you for this new beginning. 
And I thank you for saving me and forgiving me and bringing me into the family of God. In Jesus' name. And if anyone here prayed that prayer, as we end the service, we've got a prayer team. We're going to end here in just a minute. Come up and tell them the decision you made. But Lord, I pray that we would all leave here just blessed because we've been here. Lord, just fill us with your love this week. Help us be a light to others. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Would you please stand?